Welcome to Lynn Cullen Live, talk radio without the static. Email your questions and comments to lynn at pghcitypaper.com. And now your host, Lynn Cullen. And uh, welcome to the, the program, as it is. It be February 7th, uh, 2019. And as you can see, I am not alone, which is lovely. This is Susan Stein, who, when she's not on the road, is uh, in New York City. But she is on the road, and the road has taken her here. And she will be here for, gee, you'll be here for another five days? I'm here through so Monday. Through Monday. Um, she is an actress, a social activist, a playwright. I don't know. I mean, she's a, a woman uh, for all seasons. But uh, she brings with her now a specific story. And it is the story of this woman, beautiful woman. Mm, that's, that's great. She didn't feel that way, so that's well, great to yeah, hear. Well, <laughs> most women don't. I know. <laughs> Eddie Hillisum, Eddie Hillisum. Uh, so, rather than me hem and haw <coughs> and try to, um, you know, introduce you, I'm going to let you. I'm going to let you loose, Susan. Um, Ed, Eddie is uh, your one-woman play about this woman. Um, and what it's what it's about? Because um, it was interesting that you used the word story. Because it's not about the story of her life. And that is a story that other people that work on her want to tell, and it's a story that deserves to be told. But my play is the story of her thinking. It's the story of her sensibility, um, her own transformation. So it's, it's not conventional in any way. But, but it, it, you know, even, even in the beginning when Austin and I started working on it together, um, his first homework assignment to me was write an outline of the story of her diary, not the story of her life, the story of the diary. And, and so what the play tries to do is bring the audience into her thinking. So it's not chronological. And it, yeah. Okay, well now, you've mentioned diary, <laughs> and, and we have yet to place her in time and space uh, but now we know that whatever uh, led you to write the play was first written by her in a diary. So yes. let's place her and um, give us a sense of who she was. Right. So she um, she's living in Amsterdam, and she's an older student. Um, she had a law degree, but she actually decides not to use that and decides to go back to school for Russian studies. And so she's in Amsterdam um, living in a, a household. And The year is? 1941. Hmm. So Holland is already occupied, and she suffers with serious depression, serious enough that she has thoughts of maybe ending her life. And in this struggle, she um, goes, she starts therapy with a very um, unconventional therapist, Julia Speer, who was actually a student of Jung's, who is a German refugee, who's come over as many Jews have because Holland was neutral during World War I. So he's in Amsterdam, and she begins studying with him. He, he practices palmistry, 
and he practices wrestling with his patients, sometimes naked. Oh dear. So, <laughs> so it's 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 not conventional in any no, way. No, no. Um, but it works for her. <laughs> it actually works for her. Um, it's been an it's been interesting since the Me Too movement um, <laughs> last year to see how particularly young women in universities, React. which is yeah. mainly where I go, is uh-huh. to universities. Um, to have them speak about this relationship she has with Shakir because she's empowered by it, um, <laughs> but it is inappropriate and it's problematic and complicated. Well, it's inappropriate from a like a, a therapeutic uh, point of view, and inappropriate certainly to our minds from uh, right. you know yeah, yeah whatever. So yeah, but but but, but she's, she's she was into it, it and yeah yes. and it worked for her. Um, so. So right, so she's depressed and wrestling naked with his favorite. <laughs> <laughs> 1941. I just want to set this so Anne Frank is already hiding in her. In no, the Anne Frank doesn't go into hiding until 1942. Okay, okay. Um, I'm just trying to get yeah, this set because yeah. it's the same city, Amsterdam. Right, right. right. Okay. And they're about a mile apart, even oh, though really? they did not know each other. Okay. Um, right. It's been interesting because when I started working in schools, which I now do with this, I started. Um, I was asked to pair the diaries, and I hadn't read Anne Frank since I was 12, and now you can really read Anne Frank. You can read the unedited, uncensored Anne, and to look at them together, they have more in common than they do, you know, their differences, Um, and had Anne Frank lived another 15 years, she was on the way to becoming much more like Eddie. Eddie. Yes, I think so. Yeah, you see it when you're reading them. They're both sensual women. They're both refusing to demonize or hate their perpetrators. They're both products of the Enlightenment, Um, and they're both great writers, and they're choosing writing in that moment. They're choosing to bear witness um, the very first lesson I did on Anne Frank, when I finished, I like worked on it for an hour, and I finished, and I thought, just for the heck of it, let me see if Eddie happened to write that day. And I went into the unabridged diaries, which is what I right, used right. For, for the script, and she did. That same morning, that same Saturday morning in 1942, when measures become more threatening, these two women, a mile apart from each other, yeah. get their pens and choose and choose to deal with what is happening through that and it it's it's incredibly powerful it's a, it's a form of resistance that that i believe we need to pay more attention to you know because people speak about resistance and they you know audiences will do that they'll ask about resistance um and and if you kind of push them, they're talking about armed resistance, but there are other forms of resistance, and these two women were sustaining humanity in the face of hatred um, and writing. It's a a powerful act of resistance. Well, it survives. (laughs) Yes, yes. Even if they did not, it survives. And there's incredible power then in that, even after their deaths. And Eddie's very aware of that. I mean, she actually is not trying to survive in terms of her body. Um, she understands that. Um, she she gets to a point. To me, this is the I'm never prepared for this in her diaries, and I, I to a certain extent, it's the heart of the the play. Um, I'll preface it by saying I'm not sure who God is for her. 
She refers to God as the deepest part within herself, which for the sake of convenience, I call God. She was studying the Quran. She has the New Testament under her pillow. She brings the Quran and the New Testament and the Old Testament with her to Auschwitz. So she is, she has an open door policy. She is a, a, seek, a God seeker who is finding God in texts. Um, that said, she gets to a moment in 1942 when she says to God, you cannot help us. I shall have to help you, God. Wow. Oh, God. And it is from that moment on that she has now, I think, stepped into the room with God and goes to <sighs> a whole other place. So to a certain extent, the, there's a spiritual transformation that's, that's also existing. Um, the students certainly yesterday really picked up on that. They wanted to talk a lot about that. Okay. Well, before I start sobbing here, because I'm already <laughs> getting close, um, let's, so you take this woman and her, um, her amazing self and her words, and you create this play, and you take it to schools? Right, well, so, uh, so it started as readings. Um, Austin and I worked for a couple of years where he said he didn't even Austin know being Pendleton. Um, very lucky, and he's been a great gift of this project. Um, he, so we started working together on it. I'd been working for two years just distilling the diaries. The play um, only uses her words, so that was going to be a challenge from the very beginning. Because There's nothing but the words she wrote. Right. Okay. Right. So how do we shape? Um, how do we shape those words into uh, to have a dramatic spine enough that there is a piece? Can imagine. So that's what's taken several years. Um, so it started as readings, and then what happened, which I didn't realize was happening, is I would be invited, and then people, you know, audiences would respond, and I would take notes not realizing we were workshopping it. And they were helping Austin and I understand what made sense, what didn't make sense, what was working. Um, and, and that's kind of how it evolved. So her letters are also used in the play. I mean, her letters, uh, particularly her letters that became part of the Dutch resistance, those are her masterpieces. And I mean, there... This is, I mean, I, I go ahead, keep talking, but this is her handwriting and, and a... A letter that she wrote. Yeah. I mean, um, we only have her diaries through October 42. She brought the diaries after that with her to Auschwitz. But we do have the letters because her world, her circle was Christian, her friends, her lovers. And so she's writing these letters um, from Vesterbork, and they're saved by, by people who are getting them. She can do that because she accepts a menial position um, working for the Jewish Council which is um, a source of shame for her. Um, but she also, my interpretation is, uses that privilege to appoint herself a chronicler and because she knows she can get mail in and out. So we have, we have a dilemma because we have a woman who refuses to go into hiding and will not try to save herself. And does not want to be thought of as a victim, you had told she me earlier. She insists. She insists on not being seen as a victim and by not being defined by these circumstances. Wow. Um, but in the, at a split-second decision when she gets her call-up notice, she does allow um, her brother to use connections to get her this position, which she feels horrible which about. Which she feels shame. And, and it gets the, the bind gets particularly 
complicated when her parents and brother get to Vestabork because now she feels obligated. As now Vestabork is is the transit camp um, in the Netherlands where all Jews w were pretty much collected. And depending on your call-up notice, you were there for a few hours, a few weeks, a few months, or even years, depending on, I mean, it's random. You wanted to stay there, though. You did, cause, because yeah. as much as you might not like there, there, Where was, there was no news coming from people who had gone on. Right, um, right. So she feels a double bind because she now feels obligated to try to keep them off the list. And if their names are on the list, and she does use her connections to try to do that, she's painfully aware that three other people will die. Are will on go. The list. Well, yeah, well, will go. Right. So, it's um, and and what part of what I think is important is, I mean, she refuses to to hate. Um, I think she wants to pass the test, and that test is is to not hate and demonize her. Like, for example, there's a line in the play where she says, if an SS man were to kick me to death, I should nevertheless look into his face and wonder, my God, you poor fellow, what terrible things must have happened in your life to bring you to this pass? Now, we learn more about her than we do about, you know, because that's, that's a fantasy at that moment. And I bring the play to prisons. I'm in my seventh year of bringing it mostly to high-security male prisons. And what is their reaction to this woman? The prison performances are the most powerful performances. Uh, most inmates that I bring the play to have not seen live theater. And okay, and then they see a unconventional play as their first play. Uh, many of them will speak back to me because I'm just speaking <laughs> to them. I love it. I'm speaking to them I and I'm looking it. in their eyes and just talking it. and yeah. so they're talking back. But I don't only bring it to prisons here. I also bring it to prisons in Scotland, England, Ireland and Wales. And in Scotland I've been going to the same prisons for several years. And um, when I'm working with men who are there for murder, it has been fascinating to have um, a man in the prison talked to me about how she's looking at her killer in that moment and seeing his humanity. He said, I couldn't do that. I don't know how she could do that. Right, here we are, we're having a conversation. Wow. So, how did, so, how young, okay, so you do prisoners, you do audiences of regular theaters when I'm lucky. Theater, and we'll, we'll definitely <laughs> tell you where you can see this amazing production um and classrooms without borders is 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 what brings brings me to pittsburgh to the schools so you go as young as what middle school or not i do yesterday I, was middle school and um, i have different versions i would think right because she's and how do these children react to this you know i when i was told by change which is a genocide education center that i partner with in new jersey when they told me they're going to be sending me to a middle school i thought Mm. Really? Yeah. So I'm in Seattle at a middle school on actually the anniversary of her death, and I've got these kids there. I finish the play, and this 13-year-old girl says to me, do you think her relationship with God was a help or a hindrance to her? <laughs> a question I had never gotten. And I said, that's a great question. What do you think? And she said, I don't know. I'm an atheist. And I said, well, so was Eddie. Yeah, she was too. So I, s I put it out to the group of 12 and 13-year-olds, and this girl in front of her takes the question on, 
has this incredibly eloquent response, and I said what she said. I can't, I can't add to that. And I call Dale Daniels, the director of change, when I got back that afternoon. I said, you're right, it can go to middle schools. Middle school students, first of all, they, they're not bothered by the fact that it's not chronological and that it jumps all over the place right. because they're, that's how they are. Um, huh. What they appreciate or seem to respond to is what Eddie understands is that she cannot control the external circumstances. She can, she can only control her response to them. Would that we know that? I mean, I'm thinking in these times, would that we, we cannot control, we can only control our own. And I think for them, that is very powerful to see yeah. that. Because oh, they're in a world... They are powerless as being the age they are. And totally even their bodies, their bodies, their bodies are suddenly yeah, doing like, things that, yes, that we, that, that wasn't... True. And so that is true. I think that they respond to that. Um, yeah, I remember, I, I didn't know I was going to ever bring it to schools. My, my first school was, a, was, was actually a class mostly of students of color in, a, in a, a, a school in Brooklyn. I was invited there by the art teacher, and I, I did the piece, and this young man said after, as soon as I finished, he said, okay, I get that she doesn't want to hate, but did she think it was okay to be angry? <laughs> and I said, that is a great question. Gosh, that's a great question. And yes, she did. She said, you have to be angry. Okay, angry. But anger is not hatred. hate isn't. God, these kids. These kids. Wow. These kids. Let's yeah. tell people where they can see you. I mean, we're not, I'm not done talking to you, but I want to get <laughs> it. I want to get this in. Okay, so <clears throat> you are going to be on the Carnegie stage. <coughs> Excuse me. I've been afraid I'm getting a cold. 25 West Main Street in Carnegie. I bet you thought it was Carnegie. <laughs> right, right. No, I, I've, I've been schooled. Yeah, right. Right. Um, and it opens tonight. It opens tonight. So 7 p.m. tonight. They can get tickets at the, the door. The door, yes. Um, Carnegie Stage. This is not the Carnegie. There's another Carnegie Library that sometimes has productions. That's not what we're talking about. This is Carnegie Stage. Again, 25 um, West Main Street. 7 o'clock tonight. 8 o'clock tomorrow. 8 o'clock Saturday night. And 3 o'clock Sunday. Well, I'm going to move heaven and earth to get to... And, and bring a few folks uh, with me. Uh, it's uh, $5 for students and $20 general admission. And uh, just so you know, I have a feeling it's supposed And does it run about what? And right. So, um, so the piece runs about 53 minutes, but the second act is a discussion with the audience. Oh, okay. That's fantastic. Because what so happened is we didn't want that. Austin and I didn't want that, but people wouldn't leave. They want to talk. Well, because, right? because, because she brings, she invites you into parts of yourself that maybe you haven't been to, mm -hmm. and then they want to talk back. And so it's not a talk back in that way. It really is a second act discussion. It's a discussion. That goes in... All kinds of places, um, you know, because because hatred and violence um, and 
ethical and personal dilemmas and responsibility seems to be, I mean, it continues to change. I notice the conversation continues to change. I mean, I, um, I was here through Classrooms Without Borders at the end of November. That was already planned. So that was planned way before the shooting. But then once there was the oh. shooting, all these other schools wanted, you know, wanted, um, wanted me to come. Because, because now <coughs> I actually work in schools with not just Eddie's diaries, but young people's diaries, and not only from the Holocaust, but from other genocides, and from our own history of enslaved people. And so um, there's, there's a lot we can learn from young people who bear witness to the atrocities that they live. Boy, oh boy, oh boy. I'm just, this is uh, it just mind-blowing to me. I'm sorry, it really is. I had a question, and then you sucked me in, and now I'm sorry. No, don't be oh. sorry for being okay. um, that powerful, uh, you know, weaving such an incredible narrative and dropping so many, uh, wow, I forgot what I was going to say, damn it. <laughs> <coughs> it's part, that's when my brother, my older brother says, I mean, isn't it just amazing how our brains are deteriorating? <laughs> no, <laughs> don't go there. Right? <laughs> don't go there. No, no. no. Oh, <clears throat> oh, I, did she address <clears throat> at all, even if she would not hate, did she address the hatred of Jews that was? Yeah, no one's ever asked me that. That is a great question. She she actually <coughs> writes, I'll have to send you the line. She writes, um, well, well, she says a few things about that. She says, this could have been, um, this whole this whole letter, I think, at that point, or this whole tale, she said, um, could have been just about hatred. Um, I could have told a completely different story. Wow. Um, there's another point early on, earlier on, where she writes, hatred does not lie in my nature. If I were to find myself hating, I would know that I was sick and something was wrong with me. Um, and then at another point, which I think is more direct to your response, I'm going to paraphrase badly, but she says, um, she says something about People that hate have ev have a right to do so, um, but it's it's not my way to tilt towards the savage. So it's it's that. Can I give you a couple of her lines? Yes, yes, yes. Okay, so I'll tell you how it begins actually, because it begins in an odd. We get her right away from the beginning. Um, cold on the bare ground of a concentration camp. Something in me longs for that. So now we're introduced to her. Good Lord. That's the opening. Um, I'll give you a little bit of the middle when she does get to Vestiborg, um, just so you can hear her writing. On Tuesdays, the train leaves. The call-ups come in the middle of the night, a few hours before. The quota is not yet filled. A few young women are already sitting in a freight car. They hold their babies on their laps, their legs dangling outside. They are determined to enjoy the fresh air as long as possible. A guard with an enraptured expression is picking purple lupins, his gun dangling from his back. More and more people are filling up the spaces. Six o'clock in the morning has arrived and the train is about to depart at 11. The nature-loving policeman has gathered his purple bouquet. Perhaps he's off to court some farmer's daughter. The engine gives a piercing shriek. The whole camp holds its breath. Another 3,000 Jews are about to leave. There are babies with pneumonia lying in the freight cars. The doors have been sealed. 
but a plank has been left out here and there, and people put their hands through the gaps and wave as if they're drowning. Wow. Wow. That well, she's just an extraordinary writer. Yeah, a student actually wrote that yesterday. A student wrote in the book, um, she said, why does, because, you know, she has this conversation with God that starts, um, even though it starts within herself, she, she then has kind of an Abraham-type conversation. Um, and, and she, the student said, why does she think she's not a good writer? She's a great writer. Um, <laughs> oh, gosh. I think the line about the guard yeah. with the gun, gun down his back picking flower. flowers is probably the, the image that most people respond to. Um, there was a principal of a school who came up to me after, and he said, he was a very soft-spoken man, but he was red, and he said, how could that guard be picking flowers while women and children are getting on the train, and why is she not angry? And I said, oh, she is angry. Yeah. I said, but we learn more about her in that moment than we learn about him, because we have no idea why he's picking those flowers. He might, he might have been ordered to pick them, but she humanizes him. She yes, creates she this fantasy and says maybe he's a lover because she's a lover. So it's just, you know, it's, but, but one of the things that comes up in prisons because that line comes up I just want to say the yeah. reality is, is that a person can see the beauty in that purple flower and want to collect them and still be the guy who is part of this huge right. machine of right. genocide. Right, right. He is human. That's right, that's right. And that, that's been, I think, what's been so important about going to schools because you'll hear students talk about, you know, the Germans or the Nazis as monsters. And I said, mm, you can make that choice. But um, that's an easy choice. It's too easy. And she says that. She says, you know, yeah. why take the cheapest and easiest way? If, if we see that we are all capable... Yep. Like she says at one point, this is early on, but it's in 1941, she writes, Nazi barbarism um, evokes the same kind of barbarism in ourselves, one that would involve the same methods if we could do as we wanted here and now. We have to um, root out the barbarism within us, root out the hatred within us. So she sees that the, the, the first and most important step to building a better world is to root out the hatred within her own heart. Right even though she has very, very good reason <coughs> to, to feel, hate. Right. Yes, and to, to feel hate. surrounded by some, some wow. bad guys. God almighty. Powerful stuff. How old was she when she died? Five weeks before her 30th birthday. Oh, my God. Yeah, she's, she's, she's remarkable. So you think that th she might, and what you've done to bring her to so many people, m resonates more now because we see such an uptick in anti-Semitism again as the last Holocaust survivors are dying off? You don't think that this I moment is... Yeah, I, it's interesting. I, you know, most of my audiences are, I mean, I... I I think, I th no, I think it's been more uh, hatred, just the hatred. I don't think it's anti-Semitism. I the think it's uptick of hate, hatred, in yeah, general. and violence and racism. Um, 
marginalized communities respond to her. Sure. Um, I brought I I brought it to a Native American reservation um, in in California. Boy, they got her. I've brought her to Muslim schools in North London. So she has a way. There's something about her that actually jumps over some boundaries where sure. other pieces don't. Well, as you into. said, marginalized communities. People yeah. 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 So I I think um and she she's not judgmental only of herself. She invites us in. I mean, I did not realize how much hatred I had in my own soul until I read her diaries and read the line that I shared with you. Yeah. I didn't really know that about myself. Well, it seems to me that hatred is on the uptick in our society and culture and uh, there's a particular political thing happening now that is fueling it and um, I feel it I think I voice it sometimes because I am not as good a human as she uh, was no doubt well we only have her paper trail yeah that's right she <laughs> might have been painting herself to be a better person than she really was right, right. she might have been a real bitch <laughs> I <laughs> oh god anyway um, I know you've got to go because you've got to go off and do your thing. It is so wonderful that you're doing this. Where do you go after Pittsburgh? Do you even know? Do you know where you are? <laughs> I actually am in a play in North Carolina. So oh. on Monday I fly down to North Carolina. They were very generous in accommodating my schedule. So I am then playing a woman named Mary Murphy in By the Water, which takes place in Staten Island after the hurricane. Oh, for heaven's sakes, you so. actors. God almighty. I don't know how you do it. I don't know how you do it. So, this seems to me to be something you might want to see, huh? And bring some folks with you. And again, that's at the Carnegie Theater stage. Carnegie stage. And, and really important, read her. Because at best, my play is a glimpse. Um, Eddie, Eddie Hillisum. Right, it's Eddie, an interrupted life in letters. Eddie Hillisum. But uh, the Carnegie Stage, 25 West Main Street. We'll stick all that up on my Facebook page, and um, I'll put it out on Twitter as, as well. Um, performances tonight at 7, tomorrow and Saturday at 8, and Sunday at 3. Wonderful. Thank, Thank you, you so, so much. A true pleasure meeting you. you. Here, I know it's your book. I <laughs> so... Thank you. Thank you, guys. I just, wow. Wow. Okay. So, back to our, no. You're leaving that with me? Yes. Oh, you do. You thank need to read it. I oh. do. Thank you, Hans. Thank you. Oh, my gosh. Okay. Eddie Hillisum, ladies and gentlemen. There's some amazing human beings in this world. Hmm. What follows that? I know the August Wilson Cultural Center. The power of plays. August Wilson knew it. And that center here that brings in you know, she could easily have been brought in by the August Wilson uh, Center here. Um, so much 
going on to, uh, to take in. And the August Wilson Center has just this steady diet of actors, singers, of artists, of uh, brilliant minds, the speaker series, workshops. Please, again, I want, I just want to help raise the profile of this amazing place. Uh, one woman show. There's a one woman show, a woman who does with uh, Harriet Tubman uh, something akin to what uh, Susan Stein does with uh, Eddie Hillisum, who brings Harriet Tubman into our lives, into our time. And um, that is supposed to be an extraordinary show as well, and that is popping up at the August Wilson Center, I think, on the, uh, the 20th and the 21st. So if you want to see one woman doing, taking history and creating powerful drama, you can go see Eddie this weekend, and then you can go see Tubman at the August Wilson Cultural Center right here in downtown Pittsburgh, okay? Thank you. God. Oh, boy. Um, right, boy, I don't know. I, if you go see Eddie, bring, bring Kleenex. I, I can't imagine. I mean, I can't imagine. I've been having, I have a lump in my throat still. So, guys, let's just, um, in the time we have left, and we do have some, I want to talk about some of the stuff in the news. I'm blown away by a picture that I think you probably have, have seen. Um, it's a picture of a bridge, a very large bridge. Looks like nine, a nine-lane or an eight-lane bridge in uh, Venezuela. And the military there uh, that are doing the bidding of Maduro, the ty tyrannical president, um, have taken these, uh, these, these big um, uh, trucks, tankers, and, um, and shipping containers and put them across the lanes to block uh, the bridge. And they did that because the opposition government that is trying to topple the Maduro government was bringing in huge amounts of food and medicine and humanitarian relief uh, to the people of Venezuela who are starving who are dying for lack of uh, most common kinds of medicines. Uh, children are dying there. And y you look at this. Okay, why would you prevent people from getting relief? I mean, this is a crime. This is a crime against humanity, is it not? Refusing to allow <coughs> food <coughs> and medicine to starving and uh, needing needy people. 
So, I mean, the, the common thread here, again, is just man's inhumanity. Although, th that point about it's too damn easy to dismiss the people who do this stuff as monsters, uh, pawn them off on the animals. They're animals. No, they're not. They're human beings. To try to remove them from us, from ourselves, is to try to keep ourselves from acknowledging what human beings, of which we are one, are capable of. And that's harder. Harder is always usually the right way to go. <laughs> if it's too easy, if it fits on a bumper sticker, uh, be skeptical, is my guess. I want to uh, note <laughs> the, the uh, growing uh, political uh, crisis in the state of Virginia, which is which is um, actually nearing uh, comic uh, levels, I think. I mean, this is, okay, so what do we, I mean, who's going to end up being the governor of that state? You're going to have to, I, I'm willing to bet how many, is someone doing the due diligence now, going through all the yearbooks of all office holders? I'm serious. Because there ain't no way that it's just these guys <laughs> <laughs> with in blackface, obviously. So we, apparently, I think making people who took a picture in blackface as late as the 80s is um, making them resign their positions will leave an awful lot of empty legislatures, I got a feeling. <laughs> right? Right? Teachers would probably end up, you know, have, I don't know. I think we need to come um, at this maybe from a, from a harder perspective than just saying, go away. I think we need to wrestle with this, as I know we have been trying to do for the last few days on this show. Uh, it's too easy, isn't it, to say resign. I mean, who... Is there some politician in Virginia that has not either donned blackface or, um, or assaulted a woman? And, and now you see that the Nobel Peace Prize winner, Arias, was he from uh, Costa Rica? I get, I'm never good at the Central American countries. They all sort of... Um, is he... He now is being um, accused by, I think, the count's up to five women. Uh, you know, there, there, there's part of me, and I, I'm sorry, uh, I want to tell the guys, um, I'm sorry for the reaction, but I'm starting to feel like I can't take it anymore. And I think he, it's almost like I want all men to just, okay, own it, step aside, and just let women take over here for a while, huh? I mean, I, I just, it's, I'm finding it hard to listen to men. I'm thinking, 
I've been listening to you guys all my life. You're the guys who get to talk all the time. I'm an anomaly, a woman who gets to yap and talk and be thought of as somebody who's worth listening to. That's an anomaly. Is it not? Yeah. It's an anomaly in this town. It's an anomaly in most towns. Okay. Wall Street Journal did a uh, study. Uh, they looked at all the federal data. They went to the, um, the circuit courts uh, in the Middle West and checked how many farmers declared bankruptcy in the last 10 years. And oh my God. They're more endangered than polar bears at this point. Uh, farmers are filing for bankruptcy at levels not seen in, I don't know, I bet since the Depression. I don't know. The Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals, which includes Wisconsin, Illinois, Indiana, they have seen bankruptcies by farmers double in the last 10 years. Um, the Eighth Circuit, which includes North Dakota, South Dakota, and um, all the way down to Arkansas, they have seen bankruptcies in the last 10 years go up by 96%. The Tenth Circuit, which covers Kansas and other states last year, 60% more bankruptcies than a decade. These are farmers. And these are guys who voted for Trump. How is that even conceived? So it says that part of this is touched off by the fact that there's corn and soybeans being grown in, um, in other places, especially what they term the agricultural powerhouses of Russia and Brazil. And that's driven down the price of uh, corn and soybeans. But then add on Trump and um, his trade disputes with some of our farmers' biggest customers. I give you China and I give you Mexico. And Trump's piling on with that where China and Mexico have simply gone elsewhere, like, uh, well, Russia and Brazil, maybe to get their coin, corn and soybeans. So I'm just saying a uh, wave of bankruptcies hits farm country, and that is a direct result of the administration that these same farmers voted in. And they still, most of them, don't seem to fault him. <laughs> I can't imagine. I can't imagine. Hey, oh, there was a letter to the editor, going back to the Virginia thing, that I thought that this woman typifies what a lot of people are feeling, and certainly on 
in our little family here, uh, I think it was Norma, right, who wrote me the email that set off our discussion about should Northam resign or, you know, and she had said enough already, blah, blah, blah. Is there no such thing as redemption? Can I mean, are we all now doomed to be, um, to be judged on the basis of things we did when we were half-formed? I mean, I don't know if you have uh, dug around in your past and thought of some things that if they came out and you were holding a position like this would cause a huge stir. I got a few. They're not on the racial thing, but they're probably on the sexual thing, I would think, and the drug thing and all of that. But, I mean, we all, when we were young, made stupid choices because we were stupid. <laughs> we were stupid. <coughs> and I know I'd like to think I'm getting better every day, just a little less stupid every day. Anyway, here's what this woman wrote. I thought it was pretty well put. And I'm, she's warning the Democrats. She says, I am a lifelong Democrat, but I am this close. And she says, picture two fingers the width of a human hair. I am this close to leaving the party. Governor Ralph Northam made mistakes both in his past and recently in his awkward response to the uproar over the picture. But his ability to lead and govern would not be in question if fellow Democrats had his back. When did we, as a party, stop forgiving the mistakes of our youth? By all accounts, Governor Northam is not the same person he was in school. Like me and so many of us, he appears to have learned from his mistakes and is a better person for it. God forbid I ever run for office because I'm certain there's a photograph or letter somewhere showing me acting in ways that would make me cringe today. I'm this close to leaving the Democratic Party. When did we become a party that will not forgive mistakes of our youth? I'm just saying. Throwing it in there again. Uh, oh, Barbara writes, thank you, I, I got my ticket. She says it's a very small theater. She said, I don't think you should wait to get a ticket at the door. <laughs> Oh, okay. Well then, um, yeah, I, I'm sure you, CarnegieStage.com must be it. We'll let you know. Uh, then go online, yeah, and get a ticket. Uh, okay, um, Lynn writes, how could those African-American parishioners in South Carolina forgive Dylan Roof for the murder in their church Yet we call for Governor Northam to leave office for dressing up 
in a costume party. He said he wasn't in those pictures. I believe him. You know, I don't. This is very sad for a hapless politician to have to be second-guessed like this. We criticize politicians when they're too smooth and lie, but this guy is too awkward to be dangerous in the way he's being portrayed. I know I'm in the minority, but we should give this guy a break. He hardly feels hor he already feels horrible enough. Yeah, well, he does. Um, so then it turns out the Attorney General of Virginia also was in blackface. The Lieutenant Governor has been uh, credibly accused uh, of um, forcing a woman to uh, fillate him uh, 14 years ago. Uh, I don't know. That's why I'm beginning to think, just, could we just have, like, young women take over? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> what? Oh, God. Here's another hapless politician. Maybe you haven't heard about this one. I want to give it to you. Um, this is the mayor of Dearborn, Michigan. His name is... Uh, John O'Reilly, and uh, John O'Reilly got freaked out uh, when the editor of a local quarterly journal, which is published by the city, is by because it's published by the Historical Commission of Dearborn, comes out four times a year. Probably has a circulation of about eight hundred people. Who knows? Uh, he got freaked out uh, because the Quarterly Journal, which, as I said, is sponsored by the History Historic uh, Commission or whatever, so it has to do with history of Dearborn, that they printed a letter about Henry Ford um, and about his just mind-blowing level of anti-Semitism. And the mayor freaked out and ordered the uh, journal uh, to be sent back to the publishers. It would not be disseminated because it was city-financed, and he, he, he actually uh, terminated uh, the magazine's uh, editor. I mean, he, he went berserk. And it wasn't that they were peddling falsehoods. <laughs> uh, they were talking about the fact that, yeah, the, the genius who founded the Ford Motor Company and pioneered the assembly line, I mean, he was. He was a genius in that way. He was a flat-out, tin-hat-wearing uh, Nazi. He, he was crazed. He even had a, um, he had a personal uh, newsletter, newspaper, the Dearborn International, that just was this, just screed about how the Jews were destroying the world. That was, you know, right when Hitler was doing the same thing in, um, it was in the 20s. Uh, his attacks on Jews were for distributed all over the world before World War II and after. Uh, Neo-Nazis today still just love uh, Henry Ford. By the way, Jews tend not to buy um, 
Ford's um, Fords. <laughs> That's probably my phone, huh? It's on mute. I guess that didn't work. Anyway, so this is a, again an, in, an, an instance where someone tries to censor an uncomfortable truth. And it blows it up so that now I'm reading about this in the New York Times. Other stations are doing it. So this little journal that, it, it, that this mayor, for some reason, trying to uh, make Henry Ford's... I, a pretty well-known anti-Semitism, I think. I mean, he was he was way up there. He even wrote a book. What was it called? Was it called The International Jew? I think it was. Just a screed. And I, I mean, a, a, a crazed screed. But this is... People never learn this uh, lesson. That's why I call this mayor a hapless politician. If he had not had a snit fit, if he had not, you know, fired the guy and screamed and yelled, maybe about 200 people would have uh, seen this stuff about uh, Henry Ford, who he wants to beatify. Okay, uh, we have a caller. Caller, go ahead, please. Uh, hello. Sorry Hi. to call two days in a row. That's okay. <laughs> um. I've been thinking about this whole blackface thing. Yeah, me too. And and I've and but here here's the thing. People are there's there's a difference between putting on blackface and and putting on brown makeup to look black. Now, if you see what I'm saying. Uh, like the Okay, so yeah, you the, mean the, you're, uh, you're you're going as Okay, uh you mean I'm dressing up as uh um Diana Ross, and I put on darker makeup as opposed to black Mm -hmm. shoe polish. Yeah, well... What? Is that If you think... I I, I used this example. I said the the, um, uh, attorney general who said he dressed up as Michael... Was that who dressed up as Michael Jackson? Well, said he went as a rapper. He said he went as a rapper in the 80s. The governor did. Yeah, that's the governor. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. The governor said he went as Michael Jackson, right. you know, and I could see him putting on, you know, a, a, a wig and some brown makeup yes. to be Michael Jackson. Yes. Now, when you put on blackface, that's when you, I'm talking about brown makeup. You put on blackface, that's when you put on like dark black shoe polish or whatever, or black makeup, right. put white around your eyes and red around your lips so that you're mocking Black the, bl- the black person. Yeah, right. you're mocking the black person. As opposed Putting on to brown makeup to... I, I, yeah, this is yeah. a good distinction. So, I mean, you're, yeah. not, you're <laughs> saying that it's not like white people can't dress up, like on Halloween, as a black person, but just do it more artfully, so it is, you're just trying to show that... I'm not saying, I'm not saying do it now. I'm, I'm, now it's, it's basically too late. It's, okay. it's going to be gotcha. seen as politically okay. correct. But back then... You know, back then, if you're going to um, dress up as a, a black person, a rapper, Michael Jackson, anybody you might, you know, want to imitate, right. you're going to put on brown makeup. If you're going to dress up as a Smurf, you're going to put on blue makeup. Right. If you're going to right. dress up as the Hulk, you're going to put on green makeup. Yeah. You know, that's, that's, and that's the difference. So, uh, you know, I'm trying to get this whole, not to call everything blackface, because that, that word, 
<laughs> you know, has connotation. Word, yeah. You know. Well, that's interesting. <laughs> it's a, it's, yeah, okay, it's an interesting thing. Now, though, but so my Yeah, you can't do it now. You can't do it. But back it. then. Yeah. Yeah, they weren't, they weren't putting on blackface. They were putting on brown makeup. You know, if you, if you go through the history of blackface, and it has its own history. Oh yeah. There's a certain way you you have to put your you have to do the white around the eyes, the big red lips or big white lips and stuff like that. You know, it, gotcha. it's, it's a mockery. Yeah. It, it's not. It's a mockery. You're not trying. You know. So, <laughs> and, and that little somebody somebody said somebody said you're splitting hairs. I said yes. <laughs> well, see, that's what, so the, yes, the, because we got to split. <laughs> it's not easy. This is, yeah, it's a. It's not easy. Yeah. It's such a difficult kind. I mean, I don't know. But as I said, if all of the politicians who back in the day uh, dressed uh, apparently in blackface at some point, especially mm-hmm. in the South, were to resign, would there even be a state legislature left in half these places? Yeah. So. Uh, uh, see, it could be, if anybody dressed up as a woman, you know, could you be <laughs> considered, you know, mocking, you know, a cross-dresser or, uh, or, or, a trans, or a trans person? You see what I'm saying? There, there's, um, it could it could go to the point of being ridiculous. Like, you, oh, yeah. There's, that, there's always that, yeah, it could be ridiculous. Yeah, so this this is I, I like what that lady wrote. This is what I've been saying for days. You know, I think whoever you read that who said she's going, I'm not going to leave the Democratic Party because of it. But <laughs> you know, I can see where people are thinking this is. Well, getting there out are of people hand. who will. <laughs> I mean, this is where we got to watch yeah. ourselves mm-hmm. here because we we're yeah. going to get. We often this is what happens. Things become ridiculous if taken to the end result, uh, which is not to say. Yeah. Well, yeah, but you see, even if you say something like that, then somebody will freak out and say, "You mean you're saying it's okay to wear blackface?" You know, you know how you some people simply cannot have a conversation anymore. Mm-hmm. And and that, and that, that that's that's the biggest problem. You can't. And my thing is, is I don't give up. I know. Yes. Say, no, that's not what I'm saying. I no, that's you. not what I'm saying. Yeah, <laughs> you're just yeah. not understanding. Yeah, I hear you. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I like that. So you're saying. Yes. I'm sorry. Go ahead. I'm I'm rambling. No, it's not your rambling. It's I'm running out of time, so I was gonna oh, wish you oh, a, yeah. a, fond, the clock now. a fond okay. farewell. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Thank you, Clarence. Thank You're welcome. You. Thank you. Bye bye. Bye. Um. Uh. Oh wow, Laura writes. I keep telling your brother Bill I learned from your show. I have lived here my whole Ooh. life, and that's a long time. And she's in Ann Arbor, and I had never heard that Henry Ford was an anti-Semite. Whoa. Lincoln Live. Yeah. Oh, he was he was beyond. He was crazed. So Laura, being Laura, she said I looked up his book and it is four volumes. My goodness, what possess a supposedly intelligent person to think one group of people is the whole problem with the world? His title was the International Jew, the world's foremost problem. You know, and I have to tell you that the international Jew thing is really making a comeback. And it's um, when you got to know the dog whistles. When people talk about globalists, that's the the now washed up version of international Jew. Because when they talk about globalists, they trot out nothing but Jews. 
They trot out George Soros. They trot out Janet Yellen. They trot out uh, Blank Fine. Or it is trafficking in the same kind of uh, hate of an entire people uh, that allowed the Holocaust, allowed wondrous women, young women who never saw 30 like Anne Frank and Eddie to be slaughtered. And it's still happening, just got to say. Okay, before I run out of time, I, w I one more thing to, um, to tell you uh, about stuff available at the August Wilson Center. Uh, coming up on March 1st, uh, Karamu Brown, he is a television host on uh, the Emmy-nominated uh, reboot of Queer Eye. Uh, and this guy uh, does an, uh, really, again, an unusual show. He is gay, he is a black man, he's a father, he's a psychotherapist. He is an actor, and he does this um, lecture, Know Thyself, Using Your Uniqueness to Create Success. Um, that's another thing going on at the August Wilson Cultural Center. It's endless. There's so much to see. So I hope you take advantage. And go see Eddie. That looks to be one powerful bit of uh, theater. Thank you all, and uh, I'll see you tomorrow. Bye. Lynn Cullen Live, Monday through Friday from 10 a.m. to 11 a.m. and archived at pghcitypaper.com. The opinions expressed on Lynn Cullen Live are those of the host and do not necessarily reflect the viewpoints of Pittsburgh City Paper or its advertisers.